0: So we've looked at the book of Daniel, this will be the 13th study tonight, and good news, this chapter is much, much shorter than last week, and um, we'll have some time if you have some general (laughs) questions uh, as we wrap this study up tonight, um, we'll, I think, have some time at the end to, uh, to peruse some of those thoughts that you might have. So we're going to be in chapter 12, and uh, so if you want to find that in your Bible, we have been using an outline, and we have talked a little bit about uh, the way the book of Daniel is sectioned off. The first section is the court tales that we've been looking at between Daniel and his three friends. The second section from chapter 7 on have been some of the various visions that Daniel has received. And tonight is the final vision. And it also serves as the epilogue to the book. This section, 10 through 12, is the finale. And it is a single visionary experience. And the prominent feature of it is there are two figures that are on the riverbank. And they are looking over across this river, trying to figure out when the various uh, predictions anticipated by the previous visions are going to come to uh, to uh, fruition. So having said that, I thought maybe a way to uh, remind ourselves of some of the visionary type of things that we've already seen is just to show some of the graphics that I have used uh, very quickly. So we began taking a look at uh, how the book uh, is outlined from chapter one through chapter 12. Chapters 1 through uh, 7 is prose. Chapters 8 through 12 is what is called apocalyptic type genre. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew. 2 through 7 is in Aramaic. And chapters 8 through 12 goes back to the Hebrew language. We had looked at a uh, map and we have said that basically this area here is where uh, Daniel and the rest of the Jewish refugees were taken Uh, in captivity. They'd be there 70 years. However, this map also does show (laughs) that there were other Jewish exiles in other parts of the greater Mesopotamia area. Uh, There are some down in Egypt, and some of this plays into the conflict that is taking place in the book in terms of the fight for this little uh, track of land in Jerusalem. Uh, it's interesting that here we are several thousand years later, and we're still seeing people fight over the same tract of land, uh, the Gaza Strip here, as well as Israel. And uh, we're about, what, two weeks coming up to the war that uh, began over there. So uh, a lot of what we see here is something that is an ongoing Uh, conflict that has been taking place for thousands of years. Then we saw a vision of a statue that has various type of metals uh, from gold all the way down to iron legs and clay feet. And these represent the succession of empires after the Babylonian empire, which is the head of gold. And we said that uh, when you're trying to interpret what that statue looks like, there are a couple different viewpoints. If you begin uh, with the Babylonian empire and you take what is called the Roman view, uh, the Medo-Persian empire is combined as the second uh, uh, silver um, metal, and then Greece is the third, and then Rome is the last one. Another viewpoint though, is to split apart the Medo-Persian empire which means that that all of the predictions in the book of Daniel are really uh, fulfilled by the time you get down to the Grecian Empire and um, the succession after uh, Alexander the Great. So uh, you can, you know, take a look at that at your leisure again in your notes if you kept them and, um, you know, different people have different viewpoints on it. We then took took a look at four different animals that represent, again, these four empires. Uh, Some of them have some strange looks to them. Uh, Here you have a leopard that has four heads, and then you have a dragon-like creature. Uh, The lion represents Babylon, the bear, uh, the Medo-Persian empire, Um, The Grecian Empire, it is thought that the four generals that take over for Alexander the Great are represented in the heads, which would make the dragon uh, Rome. So that might be an argument on behalf of that Roman viewpoint that I had on the previous slide. Then in chapter eight, um, the two animals were whittled down to a number two and it's a ram and a he-goat that clash with one another. So a lot of vivid imagery in the book that we've looked at, and all of it is surrounding this territory that finally uh, is divided up after Alexander the Great dies. And uh, there are two prominent areas, the king to the north and the king to the south in Egypt and in Syria, although there's Macedon, over here uh, in Greece that is part of that as well. Uh, The uh, king to the north is also called the Seleucid Empire and the king to the south is called the Ptolemaic Empire. And it's these two that are in a conflict with one another as well. So having said that, we now come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins in verses one and four with another appearance of an angel. And this angel appears as a military leader. He is a protector of the people. And you'll notice the way it begins. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret. And the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. So in the first paragraph of chapter 12, uh, you have this military leader. He's called a great prince. He is named, we've taken a look already in the book, at Michael and Gabriel who have appeared uh, to Daniel, and he is the head of the armies of God that is designed to wipe out these enemies. And then there's a very unique introduction here, we're gonna come back to this in a second, where there seems to be the, uh, it says your people shall arise. There is a resurrection of sorts of the people of Israel. This is also found in the book of Isaiah chapter 26 verses uh, 18 and 19. So it's not a new theme, but it is here pinpointed to the people of Israel being given new life. So listen to Isaiah chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. It says, We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will give birth to her dead. So there's the small hint of resurrection. Now, this is not an individual resurrection at this point. In uh, Daniel 12, one, it seems to be a collective idea that the people who are almost dead laboring under all these evil empires uh, will be brought back to life. They will be restored and they will continue to live on. Now, Daniel is told not to reveal these things. You notice in verse four, keep these words secret. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what this means. It may be that the idea behind it is the events um, that are happening are not gonna uh, come to full knowledge until the second century. So we've been going back and forth between the sixth and the second century BCE. And historically, everything seems to be headed toward the death of Israel. But this apocalyptic vision or collection of visions uh, of bad news turns into good news because death, imprisonment and exile does not have the last word. So this apocalyptic vision reveals that the inhumanity of the empires will reign in death, but they will finally be judged and destroyed. So so I think the first paragraph is uh, very poignant because it is giving hope to these people who year after year and century after century have labored under the inhumanity of these empires. Any thoughts, questions so far? Now you'll notice the resurrection theme that is introduced here in the first paragraph is a theme uh, that is quite unique in the Old Testament. Um, There is some notations of resurrection linked to the collective people of Israel, as I mentioned in the previous slide, Uh, but there's not that much in regard to individual resurrection. By the time you get to the New Testament, uh, the focus does become much more on the individuals. Uh, In fact, some of the things that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, as Christ has risen as the firstfruits, we too shall follow. But in the Old Testament, there is this idea of being resurrected and this resurrection is also kind of a transfiguration as well and one of the themes of it we've been looking at in this study for the last couple months has been the interaction of this text with non-canonical non-biblical texts and again there's a reference here this is not one of the apocrypha but it is one of the pseudepigrapha books that was found to be read and known during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. And that's first Enoch chapter 70 and 71 verse 14. And it really is talking about uh, this same idea of resurrection. However, this idea of the son of man that's introduced in Enoch, first Enoch here, does have seem to have a specific application to Daniel if you just want to skip down to verse 13 here in uh, Daniel 12 uh, there's a promise made specifically to Daniel himself it says but you go your way and rest and you shall rise for your reward at the end of the days so it's collective in the first paragraph but it does seem to be applied to Daniel individually for his faithfulness uh, during all these years of service in the foreign empires, then the resurrection that's envisioned here uh, does become, as I mentioned before, a much bigger theme on into the New Testament. Look at verse two. Um, Many of those who sleep—the metaphor that's used for death here—is the idea of sleep. That's another theme that's picked on, picked up on in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, not all of you shall sleep, uh, when Paul is promising the resurrection of those who had died to the Thessalonian church. So this is a theme that continues to make work its way through the life of the nation, and uh, the idea of awakening is the idea of coming back to life. So here's the theological development of that. Um, the resurrection hope uh, after the persecution is this promise of a collective uh, resurgence out of the clause of death. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there's not much that is taught about life after death. There's a term called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, that occurs in... um, a variety of different places, and it seems to be the occupying chamber of people who have died. Um, they, there's really no distinction between the righteous and the wicked in this place. It, it's another word for the grave, basically. When people die, they go to the grave. Um, the idea that there is life after death, though, is something that is found in neighboring cultures, which is fascinating. Uh, these neighboring cultures do have some ideas of life after death, all the way back to Egypt. um, One of the privileges I had way back in the 70s when I was going to school in Chicago was to be able to see uh, the King Tut exhibit that came through Chicago at the Natural History Museum up there. And the idea of life after death is all a part of that idea of Um, putting items that are going to be needed by the king in the grave with him. So when those artifacts were found, a lot of gold, a lot of precious items were found uh, at that grave site. So there is a belief that's there. um, It's just not in the Old Testament, all that prominent. Another uh, cross-reference, and I will read for you uh, out of uh, Syriac, Um, This is a uh, apocryphal book, uh, Syriac chapter uh, 14, and it just gives to us uh, a mindset here of what, how the Old Testament looked at the idea of the grave. Uh, Here's what it says, Syriac chapter 14, verse 16. Give and take and indulge yourself because in Hades, so that's another synonym word for Sheol, Hades Uh, One cannot look for luxury. All living things become old like a garment, for the decree from of old is you must die. Like abundant leaves on a spreading tree that sheds some and puts forth others, so are the generations of flesh and blood. One dies and another is born. Every work decays and ceases to exist, and the one who made it will pass away with it. So there you see kind of the mindset. Uh Hades, Sheol is the place of the dead. When you go there, that's where you will stay, and there is um nothing that continues on beyond you. In chapter 17, it uh of the same book, it says this. Um, and what's interesting about this is um what is the motivation for these people who are being called to repent uh, in chapter 17 of Sirach. In verse 25, it says, Turn back to the Lord and forsake your sins. Pray in his presence and lessen your offense. Why? Am I going to be rewarded after death? Well, it says here, Return to the Most High and turn away from iniquity and hate intensely what he abhors. Who will sing praises to the Most High in Hades in the place of the living who gives thanks? From the dead, as from the one who does not exist, thanksgiving has ceased. Those who are alive and well sing the Lord's praises. How great is the mercy of the Lord and his forgiveness for those who return to him. So, again, there's this idea of praise God while you can, while you're living, because as you go to this place of shield, you'll not be able to. Now, why I read that is that gives to us now. This sharp contrast, because here in Daniel chapter 12, you don't have that theology. You have a very clear theology that there is a resurrection, both of a nation, but by the end of the chapter of an individual, Daniel 2. Some thoughts there? Questions? Now, one other thing that you'll notice here is... Um, in verse four is a theme that also runs its way through all the way to the book of Revelation. In verse four, it says, but you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. So there's this idea of a book, the idea of um, that which is um, a part of God's uh, um, records. and and here, Daniel is told about a book that is being sealed up. And then when you by the time you get to the Book of Revelation, you remember the books are opened, and judgment comes upon the earth as what has been sealed has been opened up and been revealed. So this theme finds its way again, Several times through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament as well. So the Book of Life is kind of a prominent um, theme in Jewish liturgy. You'll find it all the way back in the Book of Exodus, chapter thirty-two. So these type of themes are occasionally picked up upon and uh, reiterated and repeated, and that that's what we see here in daniel chapter 12 verse 4. so daniel um, is to keep the knowledge that he has secret until the time that it is to be revealed now chapter 7 verse 10 talks a little bit about that as well so back in daniel chapter 7 verse 10 you find this being said There. Uh, it says, a stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. This is part of the vision again. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousands time tens thousands stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I watched them uh, because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. So this comes out of that chapter of the vision of the four beasts. Again, this idea of books, God's keeping a record, and he's going to open those books and hope uh, and hold uh, empires accountable for what they did, not only to other people, but what happened to their own people in the process as well. And I think that does have a pertinent uh, connection to what we're seeing in Israel and Gaza as well. You see that war going on, but you see a lot of innocent civilians on both sides losing their lives as a result of um, what's going on there. So, having said that, um, the rest of the chapter is the epilogue. So, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we're going to finish our thoughts here on on this. In verse 5, it says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others appeared one standing on this bank of the stream and one on the other. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was upstream, how long shall it be until the end of these wonders? The man clothed in linen, who was upstream, raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by the one who lives forever that it would be for a time, two times and half a time, And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and cleansed and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Happy are those who persevere and attain the 3,000, the 1,335 days. But you go your way and and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. Now, he comes back to that timing. Uh, We had seen back in chapter 7, chapter 9 as well, this idea of three and a half years times um, uh, that seems to have been understood as three and a half years, and then they began to multiply that by seven, and it turned out to be 490 years. Well, the same question is remaining in the mind of Daniel. When is all of this going to happen when is our persecution when is our suffering going to end so daniel sees two individuals uh one of them is dressed in linen presumably that's an angel but there is some discussion as to is there two angels plus daniel or is daniel one of the two individuals and the other is an angel because you only hear dialogue between daniel and one of the angels So there's some thought here. Maybe this is just like before. Daniel's being visited by an angel and is in conversation uh, with Daniel. Now, Daniel remains confused as to when all of this is going to end. And so what we find is a differing of an account here. And I want to read for you out of Uh, the New Interpreter's uh, Study Bible, because I think they make it clear as to how there is a modification to the dating of when the deliverance is going to come. So uh, this is what it says. Daniel, who is puzzled by the answer, is offered two more calculations regarding the span of time from the desecration of the temple until the end of time, 1290 and 1335 days both numbers are higher than the 1150 days given in chapter 8 verse 14 although uh, there the calculation is based on the number of days from the desecration to the restoration of the temple it appears likely that the two juxtaposed numbers are glosses or better revisions added later once the predicted number of days has elapsed and the prophecy of chapter 12, verse 7, that all these things would be accomplished had not been fulfilled, a higher number was added. So this is kind of similar, and it's not, I'm not saying this to uh, be critical of, of Daniel's text here, but it seems to be something that is characteristic of people who like to make predictions, so notice what happens, even in our own day and age, how many times people predict the second coming of Christ. It doesn't happen on that date, so there is a modification to that date. There's a revision. That's what's happening, it seems, here in at the end of the book of Daniel as well. So what is often thought is these couple of glosses, these renumbering of days, um, occurs uh, after the time of the writer or the editor of Daniel. You'll notice down here at the bottom, uh, it talks a little bit about one of two glossators living after the victory of the Maccabees in December 164 BCE, but before the death of Antiochus in 163 BCE, is concluding that the cleansing of the temple was still being awaited. So um, I think here you have one of those modifications that, a later editor is trying to update the text because it did not happen as they were expecting. The end of the book um, really does come about in terms of um, a Daniel being given the promise of resurrection. So if I can summarize this, what I wanna do is just kind of go verse by verse and give you a summarization of what the text is saying. So you have two figures in verse five, First figure wants to know the same thing that Daniel wants to know when the time is going to come to pass. One of them is clothed in linen, which is a symbol of holiness, may well represent an angelic messenger. Um, And um, if this is a conversation between two angelic figures, then it suggests that these angels are concerned about the events uh, that are being described. In verse seven, the answer given by the messenger angel is interesting. The end time will be a time and a time and a half a time, which is a repetition of chapter seven, verse twenty five. Both passages seem to be reminiscent of the words that is written on uh, the wall in uh, chapter six: meeny meany, tickle, you've farzen." has uh, been weighed in the balance, and you've been found wanting. There's a reference to the shattering of the power of the holy people. Again, a collective. Uh, reference to their suffering, and then what is anticipated is the end of the persecution by Antiochus the Fourth. Then in chapter uh, twelve, verses eight and nine, the narrative refers refers to the first person, um, and uh, it's clear that Daniel is speaking to the one clothed not in linen but linen. Uh, there's a there's a grammatical mistake there on the uh, slide. Daniel appears to request more information. It's clear that the answer is not direct. In verse 10, the verse refers to a difference between the righteous and the wicked, uh, which is a repetition of some of the things in chapter 11. And then the updating of the references, two sets of time period, are referenced here at the end of the book. So Before I get to, I think, just some observations of chapter 10 through 12, uh, as I close off the study, I want to see if you have any questions uh, at this point uh, regarding chapter 12. So, again, it's not long. Um, There's a lot less material in this chapter than in the previous chapters. But do you have any questions that you'd like to ask before... I put a cap on our our study here. Okay, so what we're gonna do is kind of summarize chapters 10 through 12 through three observations, okay? This is a theological assessment of this last section. Number one, it seems that uh, the theme of angels and humans are in mirror relationship to each other, um, what I mean by that is, uh, the battles are the same in the sense that, um, the people of Israel that are battling these empires on earth also have a counterpart of the battles that are taking place in the supernatural realm between, um, the angels and, uh, the supernatural, uh, powers that are at play there, um. Yahweh is often called uh, the Lord of Hosts. If you ever see that, that means basically he's the general or he's the military commander. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, we see that Yahweh's uh, the head of the army of angels. Um, We also see again in a cross-reference that this idea of a mirror relationship, that the angels and humans are fighting some of the same evil Uh, powers is also found again in some of the books like First Enoch. Observation number two is the notation of the predetermination of the times. Now, when these uh, predictions are made, are they in concrete? And if they are, then How does human beings play into that? Uh, You'll notice on the slide there I mentioned, if one holds that that everything that happens is ordained by God and that God has learned or decided nothing new since the beginning of time, that it makes sense to look at history as the slow, dramatic unreeling of a film that has been photographed and stored on a reel for a long time. Well, then, if that is really true and it's just playing out, what role do we play as human beings? So the seer is merely the person who has seen the show before it unfolds, basically. And we have no control over it. There is this this notion that history is set in stone um, and there's nothing that we can do one way or the other to make any uh, difference. And if that is really true we are just kind of pawns on the chessboard um, that God is using. This is a predominant belief in Calvinism, which eventually turns into the predestination of individuals, uh, either to eternal life or eternal damnation. But you see some of that here. And yet at the same time, there's modification of the dates. And so if everything has been predetermined, Then, well, why is there modification of dates? God would just do it on his timetable. Observation number three, the notion that uh, the resurrection of the individual to eternal life or eternal corruption um, is something that's new, that's developing really in the Old Testament here in the book of Daniel. It really does reach its, uh, its zenith in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, that whole chapter is about resurrection, first of Christ and then of individuals. Um, it reaches its its final expression in Revelation chapter twenty-one, uh, where all the destructive forces of evil um, are finally put down, and there is a recreative restoration that takes place, and it's called a new heaven and a new earth. So some of these themes are teased out later in uh, in the Bible. And um, what we find is they're almost just kind of like in seed form here in Daniel, but they really do become predominant themes moving into the New Testament. And then especially as you see another unfolding or unveiling of information in the book of Revelation, again, using a lot of the same type of literary devices and imagery and metaphors that we have looked at here in the book of Daniel. So that's um, my final thoughts on chapters 10 through 12. Um, Is there thoughts that you have, questions that you have? Doesn't have to be just on chapter 12, but uh, anything in the book of Daniel that um, might play into your, um, your thoughts at this point. Anyone? This is a very
1: tech. Okay, go right ahead. Uh, This doesn't really have anything to do with the Book of Daniel, but I have that Catholic Bible, and I was reading that the verses from Sirach. Yeah. -hmm. And there's all altogether different than what you were reading.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah. So we were in chapter. Well, we were first in chapter fourteen. And at
1: verse 16,
0: do you have that there?
1: 14 verse 16. Yeah. It says, give, take, and treat yourself well, for in the nether world
0: there are no joys to seek. Okay, so that's a different translation of the same thing. So listen, this here says, give and take, indulge yourself, because in Hades one cannot look for luxury. So... This is a similar thing that you find in different uh, English translations Mm -hmm. of the Bible as well. So if you put a a King James Version, a New International Version, a New American Standard Version, and a Living Bible all next to each other, and you read the same verses, you would find that different translators um, will will translate it with a little bit different shades of meaning. Um, there there are all kinds of options at times for translators in deciding which way they want to go with the meaning of different words and stuff. There is a misnomer, I think, a lot of times, um, especially for seminarians that go off to seminary, thinking, once I learn the original languages, then Mm -hmm. all the... um, all the confusion, uh, and, you know, it'll, it'll be crystal clear. Actually, it's just the opposite. Um, translators interpret while they translate. So as they do that, they do it to smooth it out. Um, what's really true is you learn the original languages, and you find that it's as cloudy as looking at it at mm-hmm. different uh, English translations as well. So that's what you have here, is just a different translation from the same manuscript.
1: Because you were reading chapter 17, verses 27 and 28?
0: Yeah, go right ahead.
1: And I don't have a verse 28, my 27 is the last verse in chapter 17.
0: Now, interesting here in this New Interpreters, I'll I'll show you what it looks like, uh, which is the New Revised Standard Version translation, New Interpreters Hmm. Study Bible, um the uh verse notations in chapter 17 actually go to 32 verses oh (laughs) now take a look maybe it has something to do with chapter division so you say chap uh, verse 27 was the last version of verse yeah what is is the first verse of chapter 18
1: The eternal is the judge of all things without exception. The Lord alone is just.
0: Okay, so that's the same as here in chapter 18, verse 1. So what that is suggesting, Mark, is the verses from verse 28 down through verse 32 is not found in some manuscripts. Hmm. Okay, so some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't the translators of that version and what is the it's in what what's on the front of the bible that you're reading from what it's is this the, holy
1: bible dove of peace catholic edition
0: okay so that's a catholic bible yeah. okay so that catholic translators are using manuscripts and making a choice to end that chapter hmm. where there is a textual variant that there's a difference of reading between manuscripts. This is not a Catholic Bible, Mm -hmm. okay? This is a Protestant Bible that has also interpreted the Apocrypha and included it. So there's a little bit difference there between the Catholic scholars that translated and the team of scholars that translated the version I have. Okay, But what it's telling us though, anytime you see things missing, from one Bible translation to another, it should alert you to th- uh, the fact that there is a difference of manuscripts uh, and what is being read in those manuscripts has a different reading. And it gets complicated. There's even mm-hmm. families of manuscripts, mm-hmm. those that were found down in Alexandria, Egypt, those that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, different geographical locations. So a lot of times too, you don't know when these manuscripts were copied, whether parts of that were lost and they preserved what they had, even though they may not have known that there was additional readings, okay? That type of thing. Yep. uh, A New Testament example of that, a New Testament example of that is found at the end of the book of Mark. There's a whole, uh, there's a huge paragraph that you'll take a note in a study Bible says these verses are not found in some of the uh, other manuscripts. Hmm. Same thing is true about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight. That paragraph doesn't appear in some of the manuscripts either. Hmm. So scholars try to do their best, but when they translate, they have to make decisions. That's what I'm trying to say, and when they make those decisions, sometimes they include, sometimes they don't. Um, is there any notation in that Bible that there's additional verse verses down in the bottom? No,
1: because no, the the notation of the Bible just says chapter seventeen. It just talks about nine, verses nineteen to twenty seven. That's it. Okay.
0: Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So. But that's what it is. They're, they're choosing to take a certain group of manuscripts as the basis of their translation. And there's other manuscripts available that has a longer chapter. Well, it's not even a chapter at that point. Right. You know, when these manuscripts are written, there's no chapter and verse notations. Right. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. Good question. Other questions? Comments? Well, you can see how people can um, use the book of Daniel at times to build an end time scenario. But what I hope you've learned is that the first thing you have to do with the book of Daniel is apply it to its day and its situation. And uh, if there are things from the book of Daniel that have future relevance, it appears later and that's where uh, Jesus quoting uh, uh, the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24 in his Olivet discourse um, causes people to think that they can go ahead and take the dates out of Daniel and try to apply it to some future time as well. I'd be careful of that. Um, you know, some people like to build um, a following based upon having all the calculations down and identifying different people in history and that type of thing. What I have found is over Uh, the centuries, those people have been proven um, uh, to to have egg on their face quite often because they step out and they do that. So you got to be careful with that. Other thoughts, comments? Okay, so you have been so gracious to forbear a very difficult book. Um, And uh, at least you're familiar with it and uh, you're familiar with the content of it now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, what you do with it is up to you, but um, you have been, your perseverance has been wonderful. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. All right, last chance for any comments. All right. Well, we're going to call it a day, and um, we will not have a study next Wednesday. We'll see you in two weeks with a new topic, okay?
1: Thanks, Larry. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. Good night. Good night. Good night.